you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Psalm 126. And the text is also printed in the bulletin. Psalm 126, uh, if you're turning there, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. We thank you especially that that revelation has uh, the particular shape of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the story you want to tell about yourself and your interactions with people like us is a story about Jesus. So we pray that you would open up his story and his life to us in new ways this morning. That you would change our lives as we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ from this scripture pray that you'd help us to understand it and be shaped by it into Christ's image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A song of offense. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's a great YouTube video of the famous writer Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with his writings. Um, Slaughterhouse-Five is maybe the most famous of them. And uh, he's, in this video, he's diagramming some of the basic plots of uh, stories, the basic storylines. Sort of experts on storylines agree that there's there's a few different shapes that... Uh, that stories can take, a few basic storylines and shapes of story plots. And so he's diagramming this on a, like a chalkboard. And he says, there's the man in whole plot. That's the, the shape of one kind of story that you see. It's told in a lot of different stories. But the basic idea is there's the man in whole. And it doesn't have to be about a man. And it doesn't have to be about a whole. But you get the idea. Things start off okay. Something goes wrong. And things get better again. That's the shape of the storyline, the the man in whole plot. There's the boy meets girl plot where things start off okay, something good happens. There's an upswing at first, boy meets girl. Boy loses girl, things get bad. Boy gets girl again and things are better, right? And uh, you can imagine these, uh, think every romantic comedy you've ever seen. That's basically the, the plot for that. Boy meets girl. And there's everybody's favorite plot. He actually says this is the, the best one uh, that we find in Western civilization. And every, every time anybody writes this basic plot, somebody makes a million dollars, you're welcome to go ahead and do it yourself. <clears throat> and he says, things start off miserably. Things couldn't get worse than the beginning of this story. There's a poor little girl. Her mother dies. The father marries a vile, ugly woman with two mean daughters. And then the father dies, and she's left alone with his stepfamily. Then things get pretty good. Things get pretty good because the, the fairy godmother comes along, and the girl goes to the ball, and she dances with the prince. How could things get any better than that? But then things get worse again. 
and the clock strikes 12, and all of it disappears except for the memory of it. And she's stuck again with the miserable stepfamily, like a slave. But in the end, the prince finds her, and the shoe fits, and she, according to Vonnegut, she achieves off-scale happiness. <laughs> off-scale happiness. The shape of this story is, like, familiar, right? <clears throat> so most stories that people find worth telling, most stories that, uh, that people love to hear, most stories that endure through the ages, they end with that line on that chart going up. Most of the stories that we like to tell end with some version of, and they lived happily ever after. <clears throat> and you might say that we're hardwired to love a story like that, a story with a happy ending. We're hardwired that way. Part of that instinct that we all have is that uh, we want desperately to believe we want desperately to, to be able to hope, find some good reason to hope, that the stories of our own lives will have happy endings. Even though they're hard right now, and even though we sort of foresee more difficulty coming on the horizon, we hope, we desperately hope, and we want to believe that our own lives will have happy endings. Because <clears throat> uh, right now, we're in a low part of the story. And maybe sometimes that's all you can see is this low part of the story. The slope goes down. <clears throat> the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism question says, that, uh, in, in uh, question 17, says that the fall, the fall of humanity, it brought humanity into an estate of sin and misery. We're on the low part of that storyline. <clears throat> because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, our distance from Him, we're in an estate of sin and misery. Maybe it's possible... To be so utterly cynical that you think that that's all there is. Just this, this low, the story's going to be a tragedy at the end. Where things just get uh, as bad as they can. It's, maybe you're so cynical that you think there's absolutely no way for life to have a happy ending. But in general, whether or not we can actually imagine the possibility, we can conceive of what it would look like to have a happy ending to this story. We wish our stories would end and they lived happily ever after. And that instinct, I think, is, is residual from the original estate in which we were first created. Right now we're in an estate of sin and misery, Scripture says. But the original estate in which we were created was one of holiness and happiness in God's presence. And, um, and the one who wants sort of a happy ending, that and they lived happily ever after. Really what we want with that, ultimately, and you could want nothing better than this, is to ascend back to that state, to get back into the garden, to get back into God's presence. <clears throat> God himself loves a happy ending. So that desire for us, uh, that we have, for a happy ending, that, that someone would write the story of our lives and it would conclude with, and they lived happily ever after, that's an echo of what it means to be created in God's image. Because God himself loves a story like that. He has written countless stories in the lives of people throughout history. He has written countless stories. He's filled his holy scriptures with little stories that have happy endings. <clears throat> the whole arc of the Bible has a story from beginning to end. The whole, the whole story of the scriptures, and especially the story of his son, Jesus Christ. The story into which believers are brought through the Holy Spirit, as we are united to Jesus. The great story we already know ends with resurrection and glory. 
because we've seen it happen in Jesus. The psalmist sees this pattern. One who writes Psalm 126. He's convinced that it is God's pattern. This is God's pattern. It's the overall shape of the stories that God loves to write. The overall shape of the stories, the arc of the stories is, uh, that God loves to write and tell is this. It says in the first part of the psalm, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It's, it's like a fairy tale ending, really. <clears throat> then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We're glad. We are glad. So it's pretty likely that this part is referring to the restoration of Jerusalem and the people of Judah after they were in exile in Babylon. Right? So here's the shape of their story as a people. <clears throat> they were nobody. The people of Israel were, were nobody important, nobody special. In fact, they were slaves in Egypt. And the shape of their story goes, in Exodus, God made them a people. He made them his own chosen people. And he brought them into the promised land where things were going to be great. But, but then they'd continued for centuries in their sin and in their rebellion against God, their refusal to uh, conform to his law and to live life with him rather than apart from him. They'd, they'd chosen life apart from God. They'd chosen death. So they're on that downward trajectory of their story. They've blown all the opportunities to repent that God had given them over hundreds of years, calling them through the prophets to repent and turn to the Lord. They'd made ruin of their own lives, ruin of the life of their their, their entire nation. They made a mockery of God's presence with them, and they brought shame upon themselves and brought shame upon the name of Yahweh, the Lord their God, in the world. So they're in a big hole. Right? Man in a hole, it's like nation in a hole, in a very deep hole. <clears throat> and it was their own doing, it was their own fault. Very early on in their history, in the book of Deuteronomy, God had said that he would curse them for such disobedience. And so he did. And this, this evil juggernaut of an empire, Babylon comes sweeping in and wipes them out, carries them off into captivity and forced assimilation. And they hit rock bottom in their story arc. But the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. God had written the shape of this story long before it was worked out in the history of his people. He knew that the story wouldn't end there. It says in Deuteronomy, very early on in the history of his dealings with his people, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. Restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he'll gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. A.K.A. Babylon, which was hundreds of years in the future. So there you have the promise. And it was written, this story was written before it was worked out in history. You have the promise that God would restore their fortunes. And that's the same language that you find 
in Psalm 126, you find that, that phrase, God restoring their fortunes, restoring our fortunes. You find that phrase 27 times in the Old Testament. And usually, usually it's with regard to the restoration of the people to Jerusalem after Babylon, after that exile. Is that hugely important part in the biblical story of God's people. But you also see that same pattern. You see the same language being used in the life of Job, who's the righteous sufferer, who didn't suffer as a result of his own fault. He wasn't guilty and being punished by God. He lost all his wealth. He lost his health. He lost all his children. He went from having it all to pretty much as low as you can get through absolutely no fault of his own. And even though his sufferings gave him really hard questions about God, made him question God, in the end, as it says in the end of the book of Job, chapter 42, it says the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. The final state was better than the original state with Job. Whether you're talking about the history of God's corporate people, Israel, Judah, and the delirious dreamlike happiness, that fairy tale ending they found in their return from exile, or you're talking about the archetype of the individual, Job, found in the wisdom writings of the scriptures. This is the kind of story God writes with our humanity. The kind where fortunes are restored after sort of a roller coaster of a story. Fortunes are restored and made even greater than they originally were before the storyline plummeted. It's, it's such a pattern with God. Such a constant pattern with God and so indicative of the character of God that the writer of the psalm takes it for a promise. He saw what happened in the first half of the psalm with the people returning from exile in Babylon. And he takes it for a promise and asks God, do it again, do it bigger, do it better, do it forever. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who, who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home. He shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. He's taken the pattern of God's favorite kind of story, and he sees that it's actually a promise. Uh, Like streams in the Negev. The Negev is the dry, parched desert land in southern Judah that's on the way to uh, the Sinai Peninsula on the road to Africa. It's a really bleak place. really thirsty place. There are these dry gulches there that are called wadis, and they uh, they flow with water at the return of the rains. When the rain comes back, these these turn into rushing streams, right? And the psalmist is asking, he says, restore our fortunes like those streams there, like those wadis in the Negev. He's asking for a blessing of restored fortunes that's just all of a sudden Seemingly out of nowhere, right? Like a sudden torrent falling from the heavens 
making the desert this hard, dry, thirsty place, making it a place of life and beauty again. And he expresses his confidence that somehow this will happen. This will happen. It's as sure as the the universal experience of those who practice agriculture, the the sowing and the reaping, right? It's, It's as sure as this. We don't know how it happens. Sometimes it seems like wondrous magic. But when you sow some seeds in the ground, where it looks like they're just dormant, where it looks like they're just dead, New life grows, and at the right time, there's a harvest, and there's always a harvest party every year throughout the history of the world. There's a harvest party. There's, there's a high enough degree of probability that the process becomes proverbial for a certainty. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. As surely as you sow little pumpkin seeds, you will reap great, big, glorious pumpkins. As surely as you sow little sunflower seeds, you will reap tall, bright, happy sunflowers. In Christ, as surely as you sow tears in this life, you shall reap with shouts of joy as you come home to the great harvest party and the resurrection of the dead. It's like a sown seed. Your life might not look like much in its dormancy. Your life might be full of the tears of misery and suffering and grief that are common in this world. You might, you might even lay in the grave with no life at all, dead as a seed in the ground. But when you sow that little hard life with all its suffering and all its tears, you will reap a great, big, tall, bright, happy, glorious life in the end. The end of the capital E. You have the guarantee of it in the story of his son, Jesus. Uh, That story, it's not just any old story. The gospel story is the true story. Not just something that happened to somebody else. but it's, It's the true story that God brings us into as he unites us to the hero of the story. By his Holy Spirit as we trust in him. Jesus' story ties together all the best kinds of stories. You've got the quest plot line. You've got the man and whole plot line. You've got the boy meets girl plot line. You've got all of them, all the best kinds of story tied together in Jesus' life. Once upon a time doesn't quite work to open his story because he was without beginning in the eternal glory of God. But the Son of God ventured forth into the far country on that quest to do mortal battle with the prince of darkness, to win his beloved people back from the power of death. He condescended to take a human nature to himself, once and for all uniting himself to us and pledging himself with a faithful love that is stronger than death itself. He endured the greatest suffering anyone's ever known. He lost everything and everyone precious to him. Worse than Job. Way worse than Job, the righteous sufferer. Jesus was the righteous sufferer. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. Even his Father in heaven turned his face away from him. He went from the greatest heights, unimaginably great heights, to the lowest depths, descending even to the grave and to hell itself in order to rescue his people. If there ever was a man in a hole, it was Jesus in the sealed tomb. But God the Father wouldn't let 
the story end there. He'd written that story well in advance of working it out in history. He raised his son from the dead. He restored the fortunes of Jesus to the point of seating him, exalting him beyond all the heavens and seating him at his own right hand in power and in glory and in majesty. And if you trust Jesus, if the Spirit has united you to Jesus, the hero of this story, if God has brought you into that story and made it your story also by his grace, then you're along for the same ride and you're heading toward the same ending. Because Jesus suffered, you also will suffer. He makes that clear. Because he sowed in tears, you also will sow in tears. But because God raised him from the dead, God will also raise you from the dead. And because God has glorified Jesus in his presence, he also will glorify you in his presence. And each one of your tears will be transformed into shouts of joy. This is the story God has already written, and you can read it in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Judeans in ancient Israel, they, in exile in Babylon, they knew the script ahead of time. They knew it ahead of time. It says in Jeremiah chapter 29, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, He's even giving them a timeline for their story arc. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I'll hear you. You'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. In Christ, you know that all God's plans for you are good, that your fortunes will be restored, that you will be lifted out of this estate of sin and misery, that you will be brought home into the holiness and happiness of God's presence, ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth, when you see Jesus. And your final state will be far better than the first. This doesn't mean that you'll see this big turnaround in your plot line in this life. That's not what this means. The circumstances of your, of your life might go from bad to worse. And then just end. And the happily ever after ending that we're talking about, that happens after this life, it doesn't minimize or sugarcoat how hard your life can really be. It's really hard. You're really in a bad part of the story right now. <clears throat> we've seen the story played out time and again in the scriptures. We know the trajectory of the gospel story that we've been brought into. But right now, we're still in real pain and crying out, Restore us, O Lord. Restore our fortunes, like this psalmist does. And when the story of your life takes a turn for even worse, we know that we're called to weep with those who weep. Not just minimize and try to excuse away and explain away the pain and the tears. 
This world has been called a veil of tears, and we take those tears seriously. But when we see Jesus, when God raises us from the dead in the new heavens and the new earth, when every part of our humanity is restored, where everything is restored, all our fortunes, and the final state is better than the first, the ending will be great. The end will be, it'll be great, not just in contrast with the sufferings of this life. The ending will be great because of the sufferings of this life. Because of the sufferings that we endure. The happy ending where God wipes away all our tears, as he says he's going to do. That happy ending where God wipes away all our tears is all the greater because right now we have a lot of tears that he's got to wipe away. We take our tears seriously because they will be our occasion for witnessing and receiving and celebrating the tender mercies of God who will wipe them away. That's why we take them seriously. C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce, we might say of some temporal suffering, some suffering in this life that's really, really bad, we might say no future bliss can make up for this. Not knowing that heaven, once we're there, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Tim Keller says that the joy will be all the greater for, for all the evil that we've suffered. I don't know how to explain that. I don't know how to account for that. Except to say that God is truly great and his ways are beyond our ways and he said he'll do it and surely he's able to do it. And again, the, the proof of that is in the gospel story of Jesus Christ himself. He was known, and we sing it, he was known as the man of sorrows. That's, what, that's the way the scriptures put it. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And even though he knew the resurrection was coming, even, even though he knew the glorious joy out in front of him, he really suffered and he really wept and he took his tears seriously. Most seriously, and anyone looking at his life up to the moment of his burial, his life of suffering and hardship and persecution, shame and mocking, beatings, crucifixion and death, anyone looking at that life could be tempted to think this was all just a tragedy. This was all just a tragic loss, and you'd be tempted to wish these things had never befallen such a beautiful person. Wish it had never happened, all that terrible evil that was done to Jesus. But with his resurrection, we become thankful for all the terrible things that were done to Jesus. We become thankful for the tears that he shed. And we praise him for the suffering that he endured. We praise him. Everything's transformed after the resurrection. In his resurrection, the great suffering itself was transformed to be the great occasion for his glory and the celebration of the mercy and grace of God toward us. The final state of Jesus is so much greater than the first because of his sufferings, because he was crucified. His glory is greater because he bears the scars of the nails and the scar of the spear. His glory is greater for that. And what is his harvest? What is his harvest? When it says, he shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him in the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? When the Son of God came home with shouts of joy, what was he bringing home when he's bringing his sheaves with him? He's bringing us. He's bringing the nations. 
forgive me if this isn't super well integrated into the flow of the sermon. I only just saw this uh, very important point this morning, almost on my way to church, but it needs to be said. When Jesus came into the world and told his disciples to follow him and said, my story is going to become your story. And the shape of it will be the shape of your life, too. One of the things he said was, look up, look out there. The fields are white for harvest. What's he talking about? Jesus sowed our salvation with his weeping, with his tears, with his suffering, with the agony that he endured. He sowed our salvation. And when we follow him in his harvest work, in a story like his, it'll often mean our suffering for the sake of his mission. It'll mean all the same things it meant for Jesus. The pain, the shame, the persecution. But it'll result in the gathering in of the nations as the church comes home bringing her sheaves with her. That's really what this is a picture of, the, the kind of glorious joy that we have in heaven. Is there anything more glorious and more joyful than the, the thought of the nations gathered around Jesus as the hero of this story, singing his praises together? Jesus shares the shape of his own story with us. Your tears are real, you should take them seriously. You should take God most seriously when he promises to restore your fortunes and to wipe away all of your tears, to bring you into off-scale happiness when you see Jesus. The story is already written for those of you who believe. And it's a story that God wants you to proclaim to the nations, to all peoples, so that he'll be praised for the great things that he's done for us, so that they could say among the nations, the Lord has done great things. Go and tell your friends this story, that those who sow in tears, who go out with weeping, they shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing in a good harvest because of Jesus. And together with Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit, all our mouths will be filled with laughter and we'll all live happily ever after, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, when you restored our fortunes in the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus, it was like a dream. It was like a dream come true to us. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come and you would restore all our fortunes, that you would come again soon. Show us your face. Wipe away all our tears. Bring us into our true home with everlasting joy that is all the greater for the veil of tears that we endure. We don't know how it's possible, but we know that you can do it. You can do great things. You have done great things. Let everyone in the world see the great things that you've done and be glad. We pray this in your name. Amen.